This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics for today's show on what hashtag MeToo means for corporate America. Our phones are open at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we'd love to hear from you. How has your work environment changed since hashtag MeToo broke? How's it affecting you? Call us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866 and share. We'd love to know. That's 844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. When hashtag MeToo went viral, it woke the world up to the longstanding reality of sexual harassment and violence in the workplace for millions of women and men. Harvey Weinstein went to jail and his company went bankrupt. Since then, while a litany of powerful men are exposed as abusers, organizations are mandating trainings and revising policies. And there's the irony of individual men suggesting that they're the ones who need to be protected in the climate that has resulted. Even in today's news, a star economist has been removed from his post at Harvard, and Mississippi's gubernatorial candidate Robert Foster blocked a female reporter from shadowing him on a campaign trip to, quote, avoid any situation that may evoke suspicion or compromised. Even when well-intended, are these actions helping or hurting or not doing anything? Fortunately, some serious researchers at the Center for Talent Innovation took on these serious questions and will be talking with their executive vice president, Julia Taylor Kennedy, today about all of it. Before we begin, though, I'd like to tell you a little bit about her. Julia's work at CTI, the Center for Talent Innovation, includes cutting-edge research into the issues impacting today's professional workforce, with a special eye towards solutions for a more inclusive and equitable global global workplace and world. Julia co-authored Disabilities and Inclusion, Mission Critical, Unlocking the Value of Veterans in the Workforce, and The Power of the Purse, Engaging Women for Healthy Outcomes. She's been featured in The Washington Post, CBS News, Bloomberg Business Week, Forbes, Time, Harvard Business Review, and Glass Hammer. It's no wonder that prior to joining CTI, she hosted 51%, a nationally syndicated public radio program dedicated to the perspectives and stories of women in the United States. And she reported for NPR and NPR member stations. So she's no stranger to radio. Julia, welcome back on the air and to Women at Work. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm thrilled to be here with you and thrilled to be back on the radio. (laughs) I'm so glad. (laughs) So I want to start by talking about what was the impetus for this report? How does it relate to what CTI is doing and why'd you take it on? Thanks for asking that. You know, it's directly in line with what we do at the Center for Talent Innovation. We're a nonprofit research think tank that's based in New York. We've been studying issues of gender, of diversity, and inclusion for 15 years. And for a lot of our work, as you know, being in the space of people analytics and gender, uh, we have to really um, stamp our feet and cry (laughs) for attention to our issues. Unfortunate, but true. Right. And so with with Me Too, while it was a hard time um, for anyone who has had experience with harassment or assault or any sort of uh, sexual misconduct and a cathartic time, it was also a very exciting time for us at the Center for Talent Innovation because we saw finally the world was keenly attuned to what we knew had been an issue, a long-running issue, and was focused on how we can be more inclusive and create workplaces that don't have this type of real toxicity in them. Um, And so we saw it as an enormous opportunity. The other thing that we saw and the reason we undertook the research that we did was there was a lot of attention. There were some studies uh, springing up that would take on different slices of sexual harassment, whether looking at men's experience and whether they uh, had engaged in sexual harassment. That was a great study on that coming out from the New York Times. There's another great study that looked at incidents of harassment in any realm of life, right, personal, on the street, at work. But we didn't see anything that was really zeroing in on the workplace, um, which is our sweet spot and where sexual harassment is of such concern. 
we didn't see data out there that said, how frequently is this happening? How common is this for men and women day to day in the professional workplace? And so that's what we wanted to contribute to the conversation. I want to back up for a second because I really appreciate how you said, and some people may find it ironic that there was a certain excitement, like the secret is out. We can Mm -hmm. really talk about this thing that we've always known to be true and real. And now um, it's getting serious attention. So that that's right. So when you assembled your team and you were going to start on this process, how did you figure out how you wanted to tackle this study? Um, you know, if you think about the world at large not being ready to talk about it, I, corporate America couldn't have been any easier. That's right. Uh, and, you know, we came to this with a real passion as an organization. In fact, we knew we wanted to do something fast. Um, because we wanted to be contributing to the conversation and provide our expertise while people were paying attention. And we also knew that a lot of the companies that we work with that are in our community, um, they belong to our organization. We also do client work with a lot of uh, large employers. We knew they weren't ready to go public talking about this. So usually when we undertake a research study, it's two years in length. And the first year, we spend bringing together a group of sponsoring companies to fund the study. And this time, as an organization, it was so important to us to speak out and speak out quickly um, and contribute uh, what we could to the conversation that we decided to forego fundraising. And wow. we didn't We didn't end up we, – we cut back our operations budget for the year. We didn't end up um, – bringing any sponsor companies on because they were shy and they weren't ready to talk publicly about it, but we knew it was imperative. And so it really was a labor of love for us as an organization and as a staff. I just got goosebumps. I'm not kidding. I think it's amazing because there, there isn't a single not-for-profit organization that, that's just, you know, rolling around in money. And you guys made this, re- you really were so committed to this that you decided to forego your usual process, which meant cutting back in order to yeah. make it happen. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was really it was really important to us and you know, we also we also knew that we have a unique background and expertise in the space and could provide something important. So we felt really confident that in the decision and it did turn out to be a really valuable one for us. We learned a lot from the research and uh were able to have this out in the world and see, you know, all kinds of folks citing it today. So I I want to I have a lot of questions about what you learned, what surprised you, what we do with this. But just tell us briefly, in gathering this research and in doing so quickly, um, it seemed to me like it was a really superb process. Can you just describe briefly how you gathered the information? Sure. We used our standard methodology that we approach all of our research studies with, and we tweaked it a little bit. So we're very dedicated to rigorous research at the Center for Talent Innovation. It's why um, companies keep coming back to us time and time again to figure out some of the trickiest issues when it comes to talent management, diversity, and inclusion. Um, The core piece of our research is we do large-scale surveys of thousands of respondents um, and weight the data to be nationally representative so that we're able to make – to derive insights and make statements that represent every uh, usually white-collar, uh, professional, college-educated worker um, in the U.S. And that was the case here, too. We surveyed 3,200, about 3,200 respons- respondents in partnership with an organization called NORC. They're out of the University of Chicago, and they source really high-quality respondents for us um, to understand what the experience was of the white-collar professional. In order to make sure we're asking the right questions and interpreting the data correctly, we always conduct uh, dozens of, of interviews. And in this case, those interviews were a mix of interviews with experts in the field in, uh, in sexual harassment, in gender and racial dynamics in the workplace, and those who had experienced sexual harassment or assault in their own careers. So that's where um, the stories that permeate the report came from. That's right. From those interviews, as well as an online repository uh, platform that we set up, because often we conduct focus groups, but 
similar to what we were experiencing with companies, we really wanted to make individuals feel confident that what they were sharing was in a safe space and was anonymous. So we set up an online uh, place where people could come and anonymously share their stories and then let us know if they were open to being interviewed or not. For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Julia Taylor Kennedy. She's the Executive Vice President at the Center for Talent Innovation, and we're talking about what hashtag MeToo means for corporate America. If you want to join the conversation and tell us what it meant for your workplace, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So, Julia, the way you're describing this, you did qualitative and quantitative quantitative research, you, you got quality data, and you also got real stories from people. That's right. What did you learn? What was the thing that surprised you the most as you were gathering this information? Well, what didn't surprise us was that many, many women have experienced sexual harassment in their careers. So let me just say that first. Uh, we found that more than one in three women, and we're just talking about the workplace here, more than one in three women have experienced sexual harassment at work. That's a daunting number. Yeah, it's a lot. If you think about it, if you're a team leader, one in three members of your team has experienced this at some point in their careers if they're female. We also wanted to understand the male picture because that was something that we hadn't seen um, a lot shown on, uh, a lot of light shown on. The Me Too conversation was created, and understandably so, to highlight the voices of women who had been silenced mm-hmm. for, for a long time, for years and years, um, talking of, from talking about their experiences of harassment. And that made sense. But we had the opportunity to also look at what men experienced. And there's a real impact on men. Men are having their own experiences with this, yes? That's right. So we knew that we would would have some men who were experiencing sexual harassment. We were a bit surprised to see that one in eight men experienced sexual harassment at work. That was a higher figure than we expected. So think about it. If you have a 10-person team uh, and there are eight men on your team, uh, one of them has experienced sexual harassment themselves uh, in, over the course of their career. So that was a bit surprising. And, and of course, we wanted to understand more about what that looked like. Um, the other thing that was interesting that came out of the study is the power dynamics at play uh, that really came through in the data. So there was a lot uh, of articles talking about and re-educating us all, really, about what is underneath sexual harassment at work, that it's not about sexual attraction necessarily. It's about power and asserting power uh, over others. And the data that we uncovered reinforced uh, that theory and um, that narrative that was a part of the Me Too movement. We found that the vast majority of those who experience sexual harassment, male and female, are harassed by those who are superior to them in the organization. And many, we spoke to psychologists who told us this is often coming from an insecure place and on the part of the harasser wanting to reassert their dominance. So in talk to me more about this, because you're putting it in ways that are making, I think, very easy to understand. And it's also that the whole idea is kind of surprising and, as you noted, counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about how this plays out for men in the power dynamic, um, both men as perpetrators and men as victims. Right. So I'll start with men as victims, because that was really the focus of our research And we found that men who had experienced sexual harassment in the workplace, not only were the majority experiencing it from a superior, the majority were also experiencing it from other men. And so we interviewed several experts on masculinity to understand, to unpack that and understand why men are predominantly harassed by other men. It's important to keep in mind here that harassment isn't necessarily um, a sexual advance directed on an individual. It can be a hostile work environment. So all that locker room talk, um, sort of bragging about sexual conquest, sharing graphic images, that can be harassing behavior man on man. And often what we heard from the experts was 
This comes out of a desire to assert your masculinity and correct the masculinity of others who you feel are straying from norms. So it's about um, aligning yourself, but also in a domineering way. Exactly. And demonstrating that you expect others to align as well. And creating your version of what the norm should be on your terms. Right. As a power move. That's where the power comes into play. So is there, am I understanding you correctly that, because there are different dimensions of this. There is the hostile workplace. There is bias, harassment, assault. These things interconnect, but they're not the same thing. That's right. And I think for a long time when we've been talking about sexual harassment at work, we're using a narrow legal definition. And that's part of why Me Too took companies a bit off guard. They had been doing trainings for years and years that focus on the legal definition of sexual harassment, which is someone making repeated uh, sexual advances and or creating a hostile work environment for the, the person who's experiencing harassment. But what came out in, in Me Too is there are many other behaviors that make employees and individuals feel unsafe. Uh, feel harassed, in fact, by others. And so there's a much broader spectrum of abusive behavior, bullying behavior, um, that can, that is in this gray area. It may not rise to a fairly high legal bar of what harassment may be, but may also be perceived as harassment by an individual. So it seems to me, and I want to test this out and see if I'm thinking about this the right way, that some of this is a byproduct of where these originally policies came from, which was a reaction to the Anita Hill hearings. Absolutely, right? So out of Anita Hill, there came a flurry of Anita Hill and also um, some some real activity in the financial industry Mm -hmm. uh, to tamp down on sexual harassment and abuse that had gotten truly out of control. And so those things came, you know, in the late 80s um, and early 90s, uh, there there started to be movement in terms of actually enforcing sexual harassment, a different uh, understanding of the risk uh, that sexual harassment posed both reputationally and to the health and well-being of employees as the Anita Hill trial uh, played out so publicly. So there was a huge uptick in terms of training, um, but a lot of that training came from a compliance mindset. And as we know today, a lot of it is almost taken as a joke, right? It can come across as very canned, very forced, um, and and people don't always take it seriously. Yeah, it seemed, I was going to say, it's the cynic in me, um, but I also think it's the realist that, like lots of policies, it's written to protect an organization against something that happened that was a problem, and that it, Mm. and that part of what's so different, and I'm guessing was so liberating for you guys, was the recognition that this isn't just a corporate liability. This is hurting people. Absolutely. And in a lot of our work, we think about what is what do you need to protect as an individual's day-to-day life and why that is so crucial to employers. Increasingly, companies and employers understand that one of their biggest assets is their people. That's mm-hmm. a huge source <laughs> of capital. Right. And so if you have an individual who's experiencing harassment, you can't expect that they're going to be excited to come to work and come up with new ideas and contribute new ideas. They're just trying to figure out how to keep their head down and stay safe. Um, So there are two problems with that. There's the moral issue that you just raised, which is this is really damaging to a person's psyche. And that damage can also damage a company's bottom line. Um, And so there's, there's a lot at play here and a lot of reasons why employers need to and are getting better about how to support their employees and make them feel safe day to day. In case you've just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. We're talking about what hashtag Me Too means for corporate America with Julia Taylor Kennedy. She's the executive vice president at the Center for Talent Innovation. If you want to join in, give us a call. If you have a question, we'd love to hear from you. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Julia, as we're talking about this, it sounds like those 
policies that came out and the practices that were emerging in the late 80s and early 90s were really about protecting organizations from litigation. It's certainly how those policies got played out over time, like whether or not you buy into it, whether or not it's effective, let's check the box because it keeps us safe. Mm-hmm. And that now there's a shift. And while some of it, we'd like to have it be the moral imperative, it's a different kind of business imperative, which is investing in talent, retaining talent, and help talent thrive. It's still a business imperative, though. That's right. And what I would add on top of that is the reputational risk. Mm-hmm. It's completely different from how it was two years ago. Uh, it has already been changing that people could hold employers and companies uh, to account publicly through social media. But now we listen to those accounts much more closely, uh, especially uh, coming from women. There's been, there's been a big change in terms of the attention. Um, and there's a big change in terms of the consequences. You know, we were documenting when we, when we released the report uh, Wynn Resorts and the effect of having a scandal around Steve Wynn on their mm-hmm. share price. Uber lost a lot of uh, value temporarily, but still, it was a big hit um, when they had issues come out around toxic culture. So um, there is that reputational risk as well that companies are very concerned about, and especially company boards um, are really concerned about. Are there industries that are impacted by this more than others? It depends what you mean by impact. Uh, what's, what's interesting is the media industry obviously both had the most scandal, and in our data, we found, in fact, is where employees are at highest risk of being harassed. So it's not just that the, um, the incidents of it and the perpetrators were famous. The industry actually has a greater prevalence of it? That's what we found, and you know, the, which was a really fascinating finding for us because one could say, well, people who are in media have a bigger megaphone; they know how to communicate, <laughs> right? That 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 that's why we hear so much about media. But actually, we found there isn't huge variance um, industry to industry, but media is definitely the worst. So, do you have any thought, theories as to why? That's a really good question. I think, you know, coming from media myself, I have some of my own background in the industry. We also interviewed some folks who work in media. I think a lot of these are small companies. Um, They pride themselves on being very nimble um, and very lean. They run, it's a really lean running industry increasingly um, as, as it fractures. And so there isn't a lot and hasn't traditionally been a lot in the way of HR support, Ah. compliance support. And so toxic behaviors and abusive behaviors can really proliferate. It's also a male-dominated industry, and that's true of many industries still today. But media is still a male-dominated industry, and so there's opportunity for that toxic masculinity to take hold. And that also sounds like similar logic behind, or or perhaps similar reasoning, behind the prevalence of this in startup culture, because also they don't have um, HR infrastructure systems and policies, and they're largely male-dominated. Absolutely. And we find overall for women outside of just harassment, um, the cultures for women who are in STEM fields and separate research we find are particularly toxic, really drives them out. I mean, retention of women in STEM is a huge problem. uh, And in startup culture, it's particularly bad. So one of the things that's interesting here is how these stories come to light, how we become aware of them. Have you seen a pattern amongst the whistleblowers or the processes to make these cases public? I think it's it's a really good question, and I'll return to what I said about media just a second ago, that there is something to knowing the power of media and being at ease with it that lends itself to being more of a whistleblower in that industry. So I think there was also, that's the other reason we heard so many stories mm-hmm. coming out of media. Um, there are still, there is still so much fear so much fear to share a story publicly in almost any any industry. We heard a, a particular fear in finance where we were interviewing women who were sharing stories. They had been re-triggered by Me Too and they were sharing 
stories of experiences in the 80s and 90s that were fresh in their minds um, during the emergence of Me Too, who are very powerful women, very prominent in finance, and really wanted to be assured that their names um, and identifying information wouldn't be a part of our report. There are still very strong systems, and this was over a year ago, but I would say even today, Mm -hmm. there are really strong systems still in place um, that keep people afraid of speaking out and blowing the whistle. I appreciate the compassion with which you're explaining this, and I'd like you to dive into one part of it, that that women are still afraid, to, and any victim is afraid to talk about it. Um, You mentioned being re-triggered and why it is that um, there's a dynamic of people sharing stories, some that are years old, some that are decades old. Can you explain that dynamic to us a little bit? Maybe I'll tell you a story and then I can talk a little bit about and then unpack it a little bit. Okay, that would be great. So I interviewed one woman who is one of the ones I was thinking of a moment ago, who's very powerful, runs her own organization now. Uh, One of the few women, you know, if you made it in investment banking as a woman in the 80s, 90s, you're tough as nails. uh, And that describes her. She had an experience with a boss who... Uh, started out, she said she almost felt groomed, started out very complimentary of her, very kind, promising her all kinds of opportunities in her career, and then slowly over time grew more codependent, then abusive, then introduced uh, sex into the relationship and kept coming on to her. She kept having to um, push him aside and kind of deal with uh, some, some physical advances from him. Um, and she said it kind of culminated in having dinner with him one night and then running from him, jumping into a cab and the cab driver driving away quickly, um, to, to get away from this person. Uh, she then reported it, uh, she was transferred and, um, he was eventually years later, uh, fired based on, other uh, bad uh, behavior, sexual in nature, uh, to another colleague. Um, But he he was fired, and the messaging around his firing had nothing to do with the bad behavior. It was just kind of, we're parting ways. He's gone on to a successful career. (sighs) And she said, you know, Me Too brought back a flood of uh, memories and feelings that she had had around the incident. And then she passed him on the street, and she said... To this day, you know, as a powerful, successful woman on Wall Street, she ducked uh, behind a column to avoid having to face him and her heart fell. Oh, my God. Julia, we need to take a short break. Listeners, stay with us. We'll continue the discussion with Julia Taylor Kennedy in just a few minutes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Julia Taylor Kennedy. She's the Executive Vice President at the Center for Talent Innovation, and we're talking about their extraordinary new report on uh, how corporations in America are dealing with hashtag Me Too and it's um, all the things that have come from it. So, Julia, welcome back to Women at Work. My pleasure. Thank you. So before the break, you were telling us the kind of stunning story of a, and let's see if I got this right, a high-powered executive um, who had experienced real sexual harassment in the workplace. And the fact that years later, its impact on her hit her in such a way that when she found the person who had perpetrated all of that on her, she like ducked and hid behind a car because she didn't want to confront him. Um, that experience suggests that these things haunt people for a long time afterwards. Am I getting this right? That's right. For a really long time. Um, and and something that we're seeing companies start to do is provide more therapeutic services if employees have experienced harassment want that uh, because because it can be so impactful and the impacts can be truly long-term. But one of the interesting things about uh, talking to her about that experience was that she's incredibly passionate and engaged to make change. 
as the leader of an organization today herself. So that's one of the lovely things about some of the progress that we've made uh, in terms of getting women into more leadership roles. We still have a long way to go. But, <laughs> For sure. Uh, Exactly. But but having she's now in the position where she can make different policies and set a different culture in her own organization. So she's also um, a real success story, not just in that her career is thriving, but that she had the resiliency to not have this erode her in a permanent and enduring way. One of the things I was really struck by when I read the report is that that's not the case for a lot of women. It's not the case for all women. You know, I do think that uh, it's interesting to hear from more women coming out even now to talk about experiences they've had. I just heard an interview with Sarah Jessica Parker on Fresh Air Mm -hmm. uh, that's a few days old talking about how Me Too helped her understand some of the strategies that she developed to uh, not literally say no to men who were asking for things that were inappropriate, uh, but figure out how to avoid those situations, um, were her reactions to harassment, how she didn't even perceive it at the time, um, and how when she was awakened to harassment later in her career, even though she was in positions of power, she still felt this lack of power as a woman to to respond and, and get the treatment that she deserved. So this affects women at every stage of their career in many different, um, roles, but, but, and, and in our interviews, we also heard from women who did feel, at least in the short term, that this really set them back, um, that having this experience caused them to start over in a new industry, to start over in a new company. And who knows what the future holds for them, right? There, there is, mm-hmm. I truly believe that people can recover and move on. And there are many who have experienced this and, and done great things for their careers, but their employers really often do miss out because we find in our data that all employees who have either experienced or witnessed sexual harassment are less likely to be satisfied with their jobs. They often feel stalled in their careers. Um, And what we heard in interviews is they truly often leave. Right. So they're looking to leave. They have one foot out of the out the door of their employer if they're in a situation. Which, like which this. comes back to why it's such a Im- business imperative for organizations that are trying to recruit, retain, and develop talent that this just um, you know destroys that from the inside out. Completely. Completely. It's also and, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say it costs. You know, other studies have shown that to replace an individual uh, who leaves your company, it's 150 to 200 percent of their salary. Mm-hmm. So, when you're talking about hard dollars in the short term, it's a it's a big cost to you. The other thing that what you're describing brings up for me is I, I also heard that Fresh Air interview with Sarah Jessica Parker, and I've been thinking how there's not. There's the way that hashtag Me Too triggered memories for women, but I think it also helped to expose, help us see differently, almost like we um, got focus on something that was fuzzy for a long time, that experiences that we had that we grew up thinking were normal, were part of our lives, were part of being a woman in society, were not okay, and that we weren't given the room or the permission to say it's not okay and that's why it feels so bad, and that this has opened up a vocabulary for it and the room to talk frankly about experiences that were swept under the rug, um, a way that our dignity, and, and this is true, I think, with all kinds of harassment and bias in our society, that the messaging for too long was this is what you deserve, and it's not what you deserve. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better, Laura. I completely agree with that assessment. I think it's the biggest thing that the Me Too movement has achieved is it's it's armed all of us with far more tools to be able to have this conversation and to recognize when behavior is inappropriate ourselves and have an easier time speaking about it. I still think, as I said, there's fear speaking up within a company, but at least being able to name and recognize and acknowledge something uh, for ourselves. I interviewed one woman who, similar to to what we were talking about with Sarah Jessica Parker, remembered uh, an interview she had at the age of 22. The interviewer put his hand up her skirt, and she didn't think twice about it at the time. She said she got the job. She worked for the company. She never crossed paths with this interviewer again. 
and didn't really think about it. And then when she was talking with her friends about Me Too and who had 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 experiences, she kind of told this story and said, yeah, but I'm not really sure if it's harassment. And her friend stopped her and said, that's not just harassment. That's a fault. <laughs> totally. But the, we were also conditioned and groomed that, and it happened so often that um, you didn't know to draw the line and you were afraid, which brings me to an interesting dynamic that you talk about in the report. Um, and the title was Hear No Evil, See No Evil, Speak No Evil. Could you talk to me about what you discovered and why you framed it that way? Sure. You know, when we, it was at the very outset of the report, we really wanted to describe and make tangible for our full audience, people who had been following me too closely, as well as corporate leaders who were catching up. What was the culture of silence that surrounded harassment? And what was in place that really reinforced uh, silence, this culture of silence around harassment? Um, and one reason it comes, the main reason things aren't addressed is when they're not acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And so this was our frame to really be able to put into context the different pieces of that system that reinforced silence. So when we're talking about speak no evil, we're talking about how rare reporting is. You know, an Equal Op Employment Opportunity Commission study in a 2016 report, so not so long ago, found that three in, nearly three in four employees who experienced sexual harassment didn't report it to a supervisor, a manager, union representative, let alone HR. Um, this speak no evil is also about all those non-disclosure agreements mm -hmm. the companies put into place to muzzle things that are reported and settled. The see no evil, what we mean there is that a lot of um, Supreme, Supreme Court cases in the 90s uh, encourage companies to keep sexual harassment and assault at arm's length, reinforcing what you were talking earlier, this kind of compliance culture. Um, the employers were thinking, well, if we don't know something's happening, then we can't be held liable for it. So best we don't know. <laughs> best we kind of do the standard, here's your training, um, but we actually don't want too many reports because then we're liable for the behavior. And then finally, this hear no evil, there hasn't been active study of the kind that we conducted. There hasn't been active inquiry to understand what the actual levels are um, and, and what this looks like. And what's out there is very vague um, up until this point. So we wanted to really um, attack that last piece. Um, the, see no, the, see, the hear no evil piece, the see no evil piece is already changing. There's local case law. There's all of the reputational risk that's been introduced that's blowing a lid off of um, companies really needing to be more in touch with what's going on in different parts of the organization so they can address it and prevent it. It's um, And obviously Me Too has opened up the speak no evil. It's always chilling when we, whether it's stories through history, whether it's American history, European history, of um, when you see these kinds of insidious systems that suppress the honest discussion of abuses of people. Mm -hmm. What was yeah. going and And the way you explain it, you can understand it. Um, you can see how it happens and you put the pieces together from a corporate perspective. But what about the people who remain silent in the presence of it, the bystanders. Talk to me about what the dynamic's been, um, how it's changing, if it is. I think it's starting to change. And that's one of the values of having these conversations and keeping having them. I'm so glad we're still talking about this and Me Too is still coming up as we think about the Epstein case and the headlines mm -hmm. that you shared earlier that, that we are we keep talking about Me Too and keep thinking about how to engage in these conversations. Um, the bystander issue, which we document in the report, is real. People are very afraid to speak up. They have their own fears about consequences that may come to them for being a squeaky wheel, uh, and they're looking to protect their own careers, understandably. I also think in situations, we don't have the practice. We don't have the muscle memory to know exactly what to say to diffuse a situation. And 
So that's one thing that we're really excited to see an uptick in demand from companies, an uptick in provision of, of this kind of bystander training so that people, including um, men who might be fearful that they've contributed to toxic masculinity in the past, that gives people a way to say, I want to do better because I believe all of us want to protect one another and do better, and I know how to do it in the right way. And so having those kinds of trainings and workshops really and language really do help us call one another out and say, hey, I'm not sure that that was appropriate, or I don't think that's very funny, or um, pull someone aside one-on-one and say, hey, were you okay with what just happened there? So it one of the things that's amazing about that kind of training is that it not only empowers and, and gives individuals skills and more confidence to step in, but it's sending a message that the organization is supporting that. Because, you know, when you talk about those bystanders being afraid, the data showed there was a reason to be afraid. People were penalized. What's changed in the policies or structures that's changed that? Well, I really think it's tone from the top. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we talked about the frameworks and what's changing, right? There are all these different imperatives that are driving top leaders, owners of companies, boards to be very concerned um, if there's any kind of sexual misconduct or bullying behavior happening at their companies. And so they need to be clear about that, that it's a priority um, for them to to prevent and address. Uh, when it does happen, um, tone at the top is really crucial. And then having tools in place like bystander training, like independent reporting mechanisms, like ways to build trust uh, in HR, uh, important to back all of those messages up with tools that demonstrate you mean it. Um, a lot of this backs up to company culture that that leaders, top leaders, senior leaders, leaders in the middle are all contributing to creating this community at the workplace that supports and makes every day safe for colleagues. Um, you know, PwC is a great example of a company that is speaking out on having open con- dialogue, uh, making employees feel that they're safe at work in many different arenas. And misconduct is one of them. When we had a launch event uh, for the research, uh, we were thrilled that Tarana Burke came and really framed everything for us as the founder. You pulled in the big guns. That's right. That's right. And then she sat on a panel with executives from companies, including PwC. And what Jennifer Allen, who was there from PwC, shared as part of the panel, she said, the way we responded after our CEO, Tim Ryan, Uh, set the tone and said, you know, this is zero tolerance culture. We think it's really important that people feel safe. They, they trained all their managers on how to have conversations with people who were concerned about harassment, how they could listen with an open ear without turning into therapists. (laughs) That's hard to do. That's right. How they could say, I'm so sorry you're going through that. Let me connect you to someone who knows how to take you through the next steps to make sure you're heard and this is addressed. And that way they can have an open ear and also then move the person into a place uh, where they can actually get a response that's appropriate. Um, so that, that was PwC is one example of a company that we think is responding really well. They're also doing all kinds of other things. Um, <laughs> Yeah. The the question that they're getting that we hear is most common um, in HR and diversity and inclusion departments from men is, is it okay for me to hug a woman now? (laughs) So what do you say to that? Well, we say, uh, does she want to be hugged? (laughs) (laughs) Just ask her. Just ask her. You know, say, if you feel like hugging someone, say, I'm a hugger. Okay, if I hug you. Or is this okay before before you lean in? And on the on the flip side, if you're an individual that doesn't want to be hugged, and we have a colleague here at CPI who prefers not to hug, uh, stick out your hand, say, I, "I'm not a hugger, but I'd love to shake your hand," or whatever you feel comfortable with. Right? I'm not a hugger if you don't want to touch someone else. Um, people get the message. Yeah. So it's 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 a very funny. It, it's both a funny and a useful. 
anecdote because part of what it suggests is that um, there's a kind of fear that's emerged and a hypersensitivity. Sometimes it's easier to deal with those things by joking, but sometimes the jokes actually are the tip of the iceberg of a backlash of a resentment about change or policies. What are you seeing? What do you see in the research about the backlash? Um, is there one? Why? What can we do about it? Yes, I say the, I'd say the backlash is real and it's predictable. We saw a backlash after affirmative action. We saw a backlash after a lot of diversity and inclusion departments were established 10 or 15 years ago. So it's not surprising we're seeing a little bit of a backlash today. Um, it's, it's People, when they think about having to change their behavior, uh, get worried that they've done something wrong, that they don't know what to do next. And frankly, someone who's in a position of power, when they feel that power is under threat, uh, can sometimes feel threatened themselves. What we've seen works well um, from companies who are handling a lot of questions about and fears about being excluded going forward or um, being diminished is or not being able to uh, express certain ideas that may uh, that may be considered offensive to other groups is to say, listen, we're creating a culture here together that includes and supports everyone. And so however you want to behave outside of our company, that is up to you. But when you're here day to day, these are our expectations and these are our norms. And by the way, we think you can be part of creating a community that's supportive. And here are some ways you can learn more and here are some ways you can get involved. Um, we're undertaking a piece of research now uh, into the next year around the concept of belonging. Mm. We see a lot of tech companies and um, other companies bringing this concept of creating a workplace culture where everyone feels they can belong um, into their diversity and inclusion efforts and their HR efforts. It's the, the, it's the critical goal. By the way, this yeah. is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Lara Zara. I'm talking with Julia Taylor-Kennedy, and she's the executive vice president at the Center for Talent Innovation. Um, and we're here on Sirius XM 132, as always. So, Julia, one of the things that when you talk about that remedy of or that that next phase of how do you create belonging, it suggests that you're already aware of what the problem is. Um, I want to back up for a minute because one of the things that you did an amazing job of in the report is you talked about how organizations can get organized to um, create some remedies, to know what the problem is, to know what they have to put into place and then know what they could do. Could you talk us through a little bit of how they go about that, particularly conducting a culture audit? Absolutely. And this is something we now have a lot of experience with because we're doing a lot of culture audits within companies, applying our research methodology within a company's walls to understand if misconduct is happening now, where is it happening, who is it impacting, and uh, how deep it is, uh, whether this is across a company culture or a few bad apples or located in one corner. Because, you know, as an employer, you can never ensure that that every person you hire will be perfect. You'll always have one or two. Um, then it's how you respond. So the culture audit gives companies a really detailed picture of what the current state looks like at their company and where there might be risks. We can look at misconduct. Yes, we can also look at other issues of diversity and inclusion. Where are people feeling included or excluded in different parts of the company, at different levels of the company? And then based on what we uncover in that culture audit, we make recommendations. What is a roadmap to ameliorate those hotspots that we identify? Uh, where is intervention needed? Is it starting from the tone at the top? Is it providing those um, external uh, ways for employees to report incidents of harassment? Is it manager training and making managers aware of how they can provide a safe and inclusive environment? Bystander training, you know, we were, we were working with a Southern company that was joking. Uh, it was a fairly conservative Southern company, but they said, everyone here loves a good community watch. Right? <laughs> so the other nice thing about bystander training is you can draw on all kinds of cultural norms uh, to really make it resonate with people. 
so so we have a list of recommendations, and then we work with companies to to implement some of it ourselves and to bring in other partners to to implement a robust approach. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier is you were modeling for us how you can explain um, to your team, especially people who are who are experiencing the backlash or advancing it, um, what the norms are with or, within the organization. Is that what you mean when you refer to uh, what you call civility norms and conversations? Exactly. So there are lots of ways that organizations cascade this. Imagine if you have tens of hundreds of thousands of employees, it's very difficult to touch every manager and ensure consistency across office locations across the globe. And so companies are finding ways to scale that, um, whether it's through email reminders, webinars, but having a standard conversation guide that they can use to drive those conversations with people on their teams um, if they want to talk about harassment or misconduct. So it's one of the multiple prongs. The other thing that you talked about, we have just a few minutes, but it's, I think it's super important, is opportunities for male allies. Um, as much as we know that there are men who are perpetrating this, we've also learned from you how many men are victimized about by this. But we also know that there are so many men out there who want to be and are forces for good. What can male allies do if they want to be more active and make a difference? Oh, there are so many things, Laura. <laughs> there are so many ways that, that men can be allies. The simplest is to advocate for and champion and build relationships with promising women at the organization. Support the careers of women. Talk about how you think that women should be in leadership, not just because they're top performers, but because it's crucial to have um, gender diversity uh, and all kinds of diversity at the top of your company. So don't that's, avoid having lunch or dinner with them. That's right. <laughs> Spend the time there. Roll out the window. That's, <laughs> that's step one. And then I think it's also important. The other thing that male allies can do is they can be advocates for a, a strategy across the company or in whatever, from wherever they sit that is inclusive of women. So there are the individual relationships that they can build with women and be champions with individual women. They can also do everything they can to spread the message and drive a strategy that will support women and not support this kind of toxic culture. So as less vulnerable members of the community, they can use that strength to advocate for others, and they can also um, build the relationships and shore women up so that they can excel. That's absolutely right. You know, there's this thing we talk about called privilege, and (laughs) men are in a position to use that um, to the benefit of the women around them. So, Julia, if people want to learn more about the Center for Talent Innovation and the work that you're doing, where can they find you? Oh, good question. You know, all of the places where you find organizations these days, we have a website. It's called talentinnovation.org. We are also on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, You can find us there. So, um, so please do seek us out. And the other nice thing about our website is you can download the key findings from the Me Too report, as well as all of the dozens of studies we've put out over our 15 years of existence. Which so, I highly long. recommend. Julia, thank you so much for the great work you do and for joining us on Women at Work. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. If you have questions, find us on Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. Special thanks to Patty Hall, Danielle Bruner, and our beloved Dion Simpkins. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Sirius. XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 